Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you are a good, good father. We praise you for that. You are a much better father than we are children, and we don't deserve you. Lord, thank you for this body of believers that gathers here to worship and praise you on a weekly basis and to study your word and learn, Lord. Let us all be able to learn together today and hear your word um, as, it, uh, as I speak. Lord, we thank you for your son, and let us always be looking to him uh, as uh, the author and perfecter of our faith. In his name we pray, amen. So, for those of you that uh, heard me preach last time, uh, I know a few of you came up to me afterwards and asked me to preach longer this time. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, first, first time faux pas, you know, not really knowing how long it'll take. Uh, I prepared too much material, and uh, lo and behold, you know, I thought, if anything, I would be short, and I was very long. So, uh, I, will, I will do my best to, to maybe make it a little bit shorter this time. Um, actually, it was bad enough last time. The, uh, the recording actually didn't capture all of my sermon. It, uh, the tape wasn't long enough to catch it. So, so we'll see what we can do about that this time. So as I was uh, preparing this week, uh, as, you, as you can see, it's, uh, today's message is going to be about trust. And it reminded me um, of a, a game that I played, uh, I think probably a couple different times, um, but one time really stands out to me. It's a game called uh, uh, Trustfall. I don't know if any of you have heard of this, or it probably goes by many different names. So maybe, maybe some of you have pre- played this before. But I remember I was, uh, it was when I was in university, and I was um, a, an RA, a resident assistant. So I was um, in charge of one of the residence hall floors or the dormitory floors at the university. So we had to go back um, three or four weeks before classes started for the fall term um, and do a bunch of training and um, skill building, team building, all of these different sorts of things. And we actually went away to a camp, a camp for a few days, um, and then the rest of the time was back on campus. But while we were at camp, we did like low ropes course, high ropes course, uh, all of these different scenarios and situations. But one of the things we did was called the trust fall. And each person that was uh, in, on the, the staff, what we had to take turns doing was standing up, um, I don't know, it was probably on a on a platform that was maybe five or six feet above the ground, probably so up around here. And others of our RAs, our resident assistants or on our staff, a few of them stand out here, about three or four on each side, and they reach across to the ones next to them and interlock arms. And you stand up on this platform with, with your back to them, you cross your arms over your chest, and you just fall backwards. And you trust that this group of people that they're holding each other's arms and that they've got a good grip and that when you land, they're going to catch you because there's no padding underneath. It's just the ground. So if they don't catch you, you're going to fall through their arms several feet down and hit the ground. So it's, this is a specifically a trust-building exercise. So just this week as I was reading and studying about, uh, about um, trust um, in, in the Lord, trust in the Father, and trust in the Son, it reminded me of this game and how we have to learn to trust sometimes when even it makes us scared. So as we move to get ready to read the scripture, uh, give you a little bit of background. We're going to be reading from uh, John chapter 14 today, verses 1 through 11. But just to set that up a little bit, um, so this is uh, following... Uh, 
this is actually into the beginning of Jesus's farewell discourse at the Last Supper. So he's at the Last Supper with his disciples, um, and he has. It, this is following on from the, the disciples' despair over uh, the shame, disillusionment, and fear that they faced in chapter thirteen. In chapter 13, Jesus was speaking of his impending departure and death. Um, he was talking about being betrayed by one of them, Judas. And then at the, at the end of speaking of that, Judas actually left. So by the time we hit chapter 14, Judas has gone. So it's just the 11 dis, um, disciples. And then the, right before this, immediately proceeding, is when he tells Peter that Peter is going to deny him three times. So that's what's happened coming right into this. So as we start chapter 14, um, the, the, the disciples are kind of in despair over these things they've been hearing um, about Jesus leaving, about one of them betraying him, and about, Jesus, about Peter, one of his closest, um, disowning him three times. So the purpose of chapter 14 is actually, when we start here, is Jesus comforting his disciples um, by explaining what will come. So let us read, um, starting in... Uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am, go- I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father Father, except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So, as I mentioned, we open this chapter with the disciples being in despair. So, I'm I'm going to work through um, three different questions today that I'm going to pose. Um, The first two we will work through relatively quickly. Most of the time will will be spent on the last one. So, the first question is, how did Jesus handle times of trouble? Since that's what the uh, disciples are now having, this time of trouble and despair. So, Jesus was deeply troubled on previous occasions several times, and his trust in the power and the purposes of God enabled him to confront each of these crises. And so we're going to look at three different examples of this briefly. Um, We're going to look, uh, the the first was in Lazarus' death, which just happened. So these these three examples actually are in the three preceding chapters. We'll look at one from chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. So the first, the first is um, Lazarus' death uh, in chapter 11. We'll read that. 
When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I, th- I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, and the dead man came out. So here what we see first, and I, I skipped a couple of verses in there. I didn't mention that, but um, uh, what we first see is, is Jesus is, uh, is distraught when he comes and he sees that Lazarus, his friend, has died. His family is, is deeply saddened by this. And it says that, um, that he was deeply moved and his spirit was troubled. But what we see a few verses later is that he is trusting in God's power and God's purpose in this. And he um, prays to the Lord um, and asks... Uh, Ask the Lord, he thanks him for hearing him, and that he always hears him. So we see that he is looking to the Lord in this situation. In the next chapter, chapter 12, um, uh, starting in verse 27, we, we see Jesus when he's troubled because of his contemplation of the cross that he knows he's going to have to bear. So here we see, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So here's Jesus knowing that he's going to have to go and die on the cross. And what does he do when he has the power to, take, to actually take it away if he wants, but he doesn't? He knows that this was the reason he came. He's trusting the Father's reason for sending him. And he asks the Father to glorify his name. And finally, the third that we'll see here uh, is the, in the betrayal of Judas. So this is in chapter 13, starting in verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. And then we skip a few verses later, and we see in 27, As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And then Jesus says, What you are about to do, do quickly. So here again, Jesus doesn't stop Judas, doesn't try to convince him otherwise, even though it would be for Jesus' earthly benefit. He sends Judas on his way to do what what he knows is God's plan for him. So we can see here this is how Jesus handles these times of of trouble. And this is what he offers in uh, verse 1 to the disciples that are facing these same sorts of things. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So he's asking him to tr- them to trust just like he has trusted in the Father. Um, now, uh, just to make note, uh, in case you're following along, so this is actually from the NIV, the previous revision, which was from 1984. Um, the NIV was revised in 2011. But the reason I chose this is most of the other uh, main uh, translations that we use, the ESV, many others that are looked at, even, and even the newest version of the NIV say, believe in God, believe also in me. Um, the reason I read this version, I really like 
pulling out this word trust. And actually, if, in, in research I did about definitions, if you look at the definition of believe, which is the word many of the versions use, um, believe means, uh, uh, as a verb, having conviction based on testimony that something is true or that someone is reliable. And as used in the Bible, to believe in God involves the element of trust, not mere acknowledgement of his existence. So because you can believe in something just by believing that it exists. But in the Bible, when they talk about believe, they're also inferring this element of trust. Um, And if we look at them, what trust means, trust means to place reliance on. So what we're saying, if you say believe, or the reason I pulled out trust, is because to believe in God involves, I'm going to replace the word here, it involves placing reliance on God, not uh, just merely acknowledging his existence. So now if we move on to question two, now that we've seen how Jesus handles times of trouble, let's look at why would we trust God? So we just saw um, that trust in God enabled Jesus to confront each of his crises. So that's one good reason. We've already seen this example from Jesus in multiple scenarios of him trusting God. So that lays a pretty good foundation for us to want to trust God as well. Also, uh, if we look to the Old Testament, we see many reasons uh, for why to trust God. So there are many wisdom teachings on trusting God. And this actually, uh, just as an example, we'll look at the the scripture that Bill read uh, earlier this morning um, from Proverbs uh, 3. Uh, 5 to 8, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. So, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord, lean not on your own understanding. So here's this wisdom teaching in Proverbs that we should trust the Lord, not lean on our own understanding. And the same thing gets that we should acknowledge him in all things. And then he will make our paths straight or he will direct our paths is another way to put that. And then we also see here in verse 7, following on from that, do not be wise in your own eyes. So again, not taking our own wisdom, but trusting in the Lord for the wisdom that he uh, can give us. In addition to that, we also, in the Old Testament, um, we, we see, I mean, I'll just ask this as a rhetorical question, how many times did God deliver his people in all of the different battles that they had, in all of the different situations as you read through the Old Testament, through, through uh, the Pentateuch, through other books of the Old Testament, God continually delivered his people, delivered Israel. He was with them. He brought them out of battles. He brought them out of Egypt. Um, So there were many times he delivered them. And also, how many times did he break his promises? During, over these periods, he made many promises and many covenants um, with his people, and there was not a time that he broke his covenant. So we're not going to spend as much time looking at why to trust God, because at this point, um, it is in, in John, where John is writing this, it's it's more established with the people of the time uh, that, that God is to be trusted because they have seen this over a long period of history that God can be trusted. So then this moves us on to our third question, which is, why trust in Jesus? 
So this is where we'll spend a little bit more time focusing for two reasons. One, Jesus obviously hasn't been around nearly as long as, as God the Father. doesn't have the, the track record, if you will, that we might call it, um, of establishing it. And also, most of the, uh, the, the scripture here, the text that we're reading, actually is, uh, is discussing this. So, the first thing we look at here in verse 2 is, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. So, what we see here is that Jesus' departure will have a purpose He's not just departing and leaving the disciples and all of his followers. He's actually, um, he's actually leaving them with a purpose to go and prepare a place for them. Um, so here it says, my father's house, which this is referring to heaven. And it also uh, it says rooms in most translations. So I'm, uh, I'm going to prepare, or I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Oh, sorry. In my father's house are many rooms. Rooms literally translated uh, actually means dwelling place which dwelling places implies permanence. So rather than just a room that we might think of as temporary in our houses, a dwelling place, we're going to go to heaven and we're going to dwell there forever in eternity with the Lord. Now these, this has already been built because it says in the, in the Father's house there are many rooms, but uh, it says that he's going there to prepare a place. So basically he's going there to prepare a place for you and me, for those that he knows are believers that will be coming to heaven with him one day. So then the next thing as to why we might look to trust in Jesus is that he promises to come back and take the disciples, and uh, this is uh, Im- uh, imputed to followers in general, that he's going to take them to the place he has prepared. So verse 2, he's preparing a place. Verse 3, he promises to come back and take us to the place that he has prepared. Now, several questions immediately come out of this. When is he coming back? What does he mean by that? Is he coming back at Easter? Is he coming back um, uh, at at his um, his second coming? Uh, Or is he coming back in between when the Holy Spirit comes? What is it he means exactly by this? Um, Or is he coming back at our death? There's many things that he could mean. And there's lots and lots of research and discussion over this, but we're not going to dive into that because this this actually is a jumping off point for many other studies um, that can be done and sermons that can be given. But the point here in this context uh, is that Jesus is comforting his disciples. He's letting them know that they will be together again. While he's leaving, he's not leaving permanently. He is coming back to get them. Uh, so then Jesus says that the disciples know the way where he's going. This is uh, starting from verse 4 to verse 5. He, he says the disciples know where he's going, but then Thomas responds that they don't know uh, the place, let alone the way to get there. So this indicates that they didn't really understand what he was just telling them about him going to heaven and coming back and, and that, that he's preparing a way. They're, they're trying to think of how to get there on their own. <clears throat> So then the next thing Jesus does to give us a reason to trust him is he then is even more explicit in giving them the directions. And this here actually in verse 6 kind of encapsulates the main point of John's gospel um, or the good news. So that being verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So this is this is a a, a kind of a, a summary of the main point of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the way to the Father. So we'll look at a couple things here. So he says three things about himself here. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. So he doesn't say, I'm a way to the Father. He says, I'm the way. He is the only path or route to the Father, and therefore the only path to heaven and the places that we've already seen that he's preparing there. So the only way to get to heaven, to get to these places he's preparing, the rooms that the Father has in his house, and, and to the Father is through Jesus. Now, this is because, why is it he's the way? Well, because of this next one, he's the truth. So, Jesus represents and reveals God. Um, I've got a few verses here, all from John. Uh, I didn't put the, the scriptures in the, in the content uh, because it's several, but they're all in John. If you want to look, I have them referenced here. So, going all the way back to the prologue of John in chapter 1, a very famous verse. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So, looking at him representing and revealing and, and revealing God, we see here that he's been there since the beginning. He was with God, which indicates that he wasn't God, that he's actually separate. But then it says, and the word was God. So then the word has a, um, has a, a, a divine power, a divine nature like God. And we also see in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So the word or the truth, which is what it was often referred to, uh, the Jews, when they used the word, they meant, um, they meant the, the, the truth, uh, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So now we have the truth in human form. So no longer God the Father becomes in God the Son form to be a human, a divine human. Um, we also have verses 17 to 18. So this is closing the, the prologue. So he opens the prologue, have it in the middle, and then even at the very end where we still see this. So 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So we see in verse 17, it, it explicitly says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that while no one has ever seen God, God the one and only, referring to Jesus who's at his Father's side, has made him known. So we can know the Father through Jesus. And then finally from one other chapter here, uh, in chapter 5, verse 19... We have, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. So here he is also giving us the fact that he is representing God because of the fact that he does what, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So that's the truth. And then finally, the life, the third thing that Jesus says about himself in this statement. 
the life, he, he prevents eternal separation or eternal death um, from God. So that's how we get eternal life. It's the opposite. He, doesn't, he separates us from having eternal death and gives us eternal life. So um, we can see this just a couple verses later from what we just read, in, now in 521. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So here we see God has granted Jesus the ability to give life. Uh, and then just a couple of verses later, continuing in the same section, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So we see lots of these things continuing to be woven together, truth, life, and all of these lead to the reason that he is the way to God. So the next point within this, why trust Jesus? Jesus then affirms what we've looked at back in chapter 1 in the, in the, the prologue, the opening to the book of John. Uh, he, he confirms this by stating that he is, the, he is one with the Father and that the disciples implicitly know the Father through him. We see this in verse 7. <clears throat> if you really know me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So implicitly, by them knowing Jesus, they see God. However, again, just like we saw with uh, the last question from a disciple, first, the first question was from Thomas. Now we get a question from Philip, showing that, again, they, they aren't fully comprehending this. Uh, he asks, uh, he says um, uh, that he just wants them to show them the Father. He, feel, he asks them to show, show them the Father. So Jesus now moves on, just like he did last time, of having to further clarify or be more explicit. Uh, Jesus now reminds them uh, that uh, of, of how much time that they've spent together um, and that they should know him. Uh, so he tells them explicitly, um, uh, and actually I, I read that out of order, sorry. First, uh, I was going to point out that he tells them explicitly they know the Father. So if you look into, into verse 9, as we continue working through this, our, 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 chat, our verses 1 through 11, in verse 9, in the, the middle part there, he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So he's even more explicit now since the disciples didn't get it the first time. <clears throat> so now, the, the point I was starting to make, Jesus reminds uh, the disciples of how much time they've spent together and that they should know him. Um, we see this also in verse 9 when he, asks, when he asks Philip in response to the question, do you know me, Philip, or don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? So he points to the fact that the disciples have been spending quite a bit of time with him and they should know him by now. Um, so, and we see in verse 10 that Jesus isn't just a religious teacher or a prophet or a means to an end. And what I mean by that is we've seen that Jesus is the way to the Father, but that's not his only purpose. He, his purpose isn't just to be the, the vehicle by which we get to God, and that's it. Um, God can be found in him. So, he doesn't just get us to God. God is found in him. So we see this in verse 10 uh, where it says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. 
Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So the Father is living in Jesus, doing his work. We also see one other reference to this if we back up a couple chapters to chapter 10 and verse 30. And this is also a well-known short verse. I and the Father are one. So in multiple places that John has documented, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he and the Father are one. They're not They're not separate. It's not just completely separate God the Father, completely separate Jesus the Son, but they are one. So Jesus then compels his disciples at the close of our passage here to believe. From in, in verses 9 through 11, we've read part of this, but you see him asking lots of questions and trying to compel them that they should believe. He says... Uh, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So he compels them based on what they know from their time with him and also from what they've experienced which we've explored in verses 6 to 9 already, the things that they have experienced, with some of the things they've experienced with Jesus, um, understanding that he's the truth and that he's the life and that they can see the Father through him. And the final thing, if that's not enough, if all of these other things, all these other reasons to trust Jesus, their, their knowledge of him, their knowing him personally, the experiences that they've had, in his, just in his presence and learning from him, his teachings, his um, fulfillment of, of Old Testament prophecy, um, and all of these things that he is presenting plainly to them about what he will be doing. Then he says, if, basically, if that's not enough, at least believe in the, in, um, based on witnessing the miracles that, that he performed. So, Jesus performed, I think it was about 35 miracles. Um, if you, when you look through the Gospels, there's about 30 records of 35 different miracles that he performed. And the, uh, the disciples have been around for many of these and are familiar with all of them. So if you don't believe all of these other things that, that Jesus has done to, to um, allow himself to be trusted, then at least look to the one thing that you can see with your eyes and believe on that. So, summarizing all of this uh, into a main point, we can see historically over long periods of time about the reasons to trust God the Father. We can see here in John through, through, his, uh, through this passage the many reasons that he presents as to why the disciples and his followers in general, meaning us, uh, should trust him, um, uh, including, like I said, if nothing else, then the miracles he's performed. So the main point is that both God the Father and Jesus the Son deserve our trust. So many times we think about, oh, trusting in God, but it's actually both. It's trusting in God the Father. It's trusting in Jesus the Son as well. And just to turn this on end a little bit, um, uh, something I'm I'm calling a, a, a turning point here with this, not only do they both deserve our trust, but from what we've studied in this passage Jesus actually expects our trust in him 
to equal our trust in God because he and the Father are one. So if you look at verse 1, back to the very beginning, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So he states to trust both of them. He doesn't give any level of trust more in one than the other. But we've been able to understand from all these other passages now that Jesus is in the Father. The Father is in Jesus. They are one. Um, And so we need to have as much trust in Jesus uh, in what he says and in Jesus as our Savior as we have in God the Father. That's all. So hopefully I kept it a little shorter than last time. Let us go to the word of the, the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear God, we praise you for today and the time we have here. Let the words that have been spoken today be clear and plain. Let us think about the trust that we have in you, the trust we have in your son. We thank you for sending your son, for sending him to the earth, for you working through him, for you being in him, for him being in you, for the father and the son being one. We thank you for this, Lord. We ask you to help us to trust you more day in and day out in our lives and to continue to trust the work of Christ on the cross that allows us to be reconciled to you and come to the place that Jesus has prepared for us in your home in heaven, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.